Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. It was November 2nd. The year was 1872. Three days before Americans were set to cast their ballots for president, U.S. Marshals appeared at the New York offices of a small, financially struggling newspaper called Woodhall and Claflin's Weekly. The owners, Victoria Woodhall and her sister, Tenny Claflin, had just loaded up a horse-drawn carriage with hundreds of copies of their latest issue. In it, they detailed the adulterous affair between one of the country's most well-known preachers, Reverend Henry Ward Beecher, and one of his parishioners, the New York socialite, Elizabeth Tilton. Woodhall and Claflin were handcuffed, arrested, and charged with sending obscene material through the U.S. mail service. This moment of high drama was years in the making. It might have been relegated to an interesting historical footnote in America's long-running conflict over its priggish sexual morality. But this is not just a story about racy literature. Victoria Woodhall wasn't a madam or some back-alley purveyor of pornography. She was a successful businesswoman and a leader in the suffragette movement. She was the first woman to be nominated for the presidency of the United States of America in an election set to take place in a mere matter of hours. The colorful and controversial Victoria Woodhall is perhaps the most long-shot candidate of them all. A female presidential hopeful with progressive ideas about sex and equality decades before her time, who chased the presidency in an age when women were denied the right to even vote. History may be written by the winners, but in American presidential politics, history is often shaped by the long shots. God bless you, and God bless America. These are the stories of the campaigns of presidential primary losers, the candidates who didn't make it onto the final ballot but still changed how we see America. No generation can choose the age or circumstance in which it is born, but through leadership, it can choose to make the age in which it is born an age of enlightenment, an age of jobs, and peace and justice. These are the stories of America's presidential primary battles, the contest for the most powerful office in the world. I'm Connor Powell, and I'll be your host. For the last decade, I've covered some of the world's most violent conflicts and turbulent international elections as a foreign correspondent. Now I'm back in the U.S., digging into the fascinating tales of campaigns that bring a kaleidoscope of color to our black and white history. You're listening to Long Shots. This is Victoria Woodhall, Mrs. Satan. The Civil War ushered in dramatic cultural changes in America, economic, political, industrial, and this surprised me as well, sexual, says historian Amy Warbell. There were a lot of young men who came from rural environments who were exposed to a lot of uh, pornography and prostitution in a way that they hadn't been before. In Union and Confederate camps, alcohol, gambling, and cheap erotic novels called Barracks Favorites were readily available. While the rise of cameras led to the spread of pornographic pictures 
among the millions of troops. A single photo of a scantily clad or naked woman could be bought for about 10 cents, and sex for purchase, prostitution, was everywhere. Many military units, both Union and Confederate, reported a quarter of their troops with some type of venereal disease. The few health records that survived from that era show the rate of sexually transmitted diseases like syphilis and gonorrhea skyrocketed. If America's love affair with vice started during the Civil War, it became a full-on addiction after the war. When Robert E. Lee surrendered to Ulysses S. Grant at Appomattox on April 9, 1865, millions of soldiers, young men, went home. They may have put down their rifles, but the vices they acquired while in the military were more difficult to set aside as they moved to big cities like New York to find work. Once there, they are able to go to really risque burlesque shows, and there are young boys, you know, selling uh, ex- sexually explicit photographs just on the streets. There is an endless parade of prostitution. There were even guides printed to brothels that described the women in the house and what the furnishings were like. And so it's definitely a very different story than the America before the Civil War. During the second half of the 19th century, the U.S. economy bounced back from years of war. This Gilded Age, as it is known, was a time of intense industrialization, unprecedented economic growth, and mass immigration. On the surface, America was thriving. But beneath there was social chaos as newly freed slaves, immigrants, and women jostled for stature in a country that in the past only recognized landowning white men as full citizens. It was a perfect time for vice to flourish, and it did. Brothels were so prevalent that the author, Walt Whitman, claimed that 19 out of 20 American men were familiar with houses of prostitution. At the same time, women who had tilled farms and worked in factories during the war saw former slaves gain new rights that were still denied to women. Often this does happen after wars, you know, as the position of men and women is reevaluated because there are fewer men or the men have been away for a long time. Women like the newly freed slaves, says the author Eileen Horn, wanted basic rights, and the suffragette movement came into its own during this uneasy time of transformation. No one challenged the societal status quo and the very nature of American society more passionately and with more ferocity, says the activist Kate Kelly, than the woman the media would call Mrs. Satan. There are certain people who are so visionary and so ahead of their time, and she was one of those people. Victoria Woodhall was born into a poor, large, and volatile family in 1838. Her father was a con man, a charlatan, a snake oil salesman, her mother, pretty much all of the above as well. As a family, they traveled around the country by wagon, offering psychic readings and selling medicine and other home remedies to unsuspecting customers, usually leaving town in a hurry just before they were chased out. At most, Woodhall received two or three years of a proper education, but she learned at an early age the tricks of the family trade. She and her sister, Tenny, were forced by their parents to work as clairvoyants, 
communicating with the dead relatives of gullible dupes. They had these two beautiful daughters, Victoria and her sister, Tenny, and of course, attracted a lot of male clients as a result, and they kind of pimped their children. Victoria Woodhull married young at the age of 15 to a man not so different than her father. Canning Woodhull claimed he was a doctor from a respectable New York family. In reality, he was a drunk and morphine addict who spent more time in brothels than at home. After Woodhull gave birth to two children, they divorced. Keep in mind it was a time no one divorced, at least no one respectable. Woodhull married again in 1866. Her second husband, Colonel James Blood, was a Civil War hero and already married when they began their relationship. He was also a committed spiritualist and described himself as a champion of freedom in all domains, including love. Colonel Blood considered himself a free lover, and he and Woodhall had an open relationship. Along with her sister, they all moved to New York City around 1868. At some point, the sisters met the newly widowed Cornelius Vanderbilt, one of the richest men in America. He was a giant of the industrial age and also extremely superstitious. The Commodore, as he was known, was said to place dishes of salt under his bed legs to ward off evil spirits. Soon the sisters were up to their old ways. The shipping magnet began regularly attending their seances. It was the start of a very lucrative relationship that would become the talk of New York's upper cross society. Vanderbilt was so enthralled with the pair, he funded their business. The first female-owned stock trading company, specifically catering to women on Wall Street. Woodhall, Claflin, and Company opened their doors in February of 1870. Women were still pretty much considered property by their husbands, so the idea that women could invest their own money was a shocking rebellion. We went to Wall Street, not particularly because I wanted to be a broker, but because I wanted to plant the flag of women's rebellion in the center of the continent. She really was not playing by anybody else's rules but her own. The New York press ate it up. One headline read, Wall Street aroused, while a Harper's Weekly cartoon described them as bewitching brokers. They did well, too, making hundreds of thousands of dollars in their first few weeks. The way that she approached wealth is also the way that she approached her life, which is, I'm going to, you know, take what I've been dealt (laughs) and make it my own and make it completely unique. Soon, pretty much every woman with money in New York, from wealthy widows to teachers to actresses to prostitutes to brothel madams, were turning to Woodhall and Claflin for investment help. A woman's ability to earn money is better protection against tyranny and the brutality of men than her ability to vote. They flourished for a little while as stockbrokers, and then there were problems in the markets, and they decided to set up as journalists and started a newspaper. I mean, you got to love their gumption. In the years following the Civil War, America's economy and sexual appetite were booming. The Gilded Age was awash in money and sex. But American society remained rigid and unfairly demanding of women, who were treated as second-class citizens. They lacked the right to vote. Owning property was so difficult, it might as well have been illegal, and few were allowed to choose who to marry. 
Marriage was a pretty loveless institution at the time, says lawyer and activist Adrian Lawrence. A woman could be abused or beaten up by a spouse, and that's okay because you were just considered property during that time. Victoria Woodhall refused to conform to the societal norms of the time. With the money from their Wall Street venture, the sisters launched Woodhall and Claflin's Weekly. It is in this newspaper that Woodhall would truly launch her rebellion, arguing for radical ideas like a single standard of morality for men and women, the legalization of prostitution, free love, and of course, the right to vote. She just saw decades, if not centuries ahead, and lived her life in such a way that seems to be almost completely unconstrained by her time period, which is incredible. When I first heard the term free love, I immediately thought of 1960s hippies and the sexual revolution, as I'm sure you did too. Woodhall was definitely a woman before her time, but not that far ahead. Her view of free love is far less raunchy and racy than it sounds. For her, free love was about the right of women to marry, divorce, and have children on their own terms. Woodhall also opposed the societal double standards that allowed men to have sex with whomever they wanted, whenever they wanted, but ridiculed and ostracized women for the same behavior. At one point, Woodhall demonstrated her belief in free love by allowing her alcoholic and drug-addicted first husband, Caning Woodhall, to live with her and her second husband, Colonel Blood. She not only lived the way that men were allowed to live, Victoria Woodhull pioneered a completely different way of living that was totally outside of mainstream culture. During a speech at New York's Steinway Hall, Woodhall decried the sexual double standards of the day. Yes, I am a free lover. I have an inalienable constitutional and natural right to love whom I may, to love as long or as short a period as I can, to change that love every day if I please. And with that right, neither you nor any law you can frame have any right to interfere. With elegance, charm, and a unique ability to attract media attention, Victoria Woodhall was building a reputation as a fierce advocate in a day and age when women had few. We are in the midst of a generational war. Boomers just die. Xers, Karens, millennials, entitled brats, Gen Z, ungrateful TikTokers. I'm Carol Costello, a veteran journalist, and I have a new podcast series called I Hate Your Generation. It invites people in different generations to talk frankly, face to face, about everything from cancel culture to racial justice to socialism. Contentious, yes, but healing too. If you don't get your kit or that old guy, I Hate Your Generation is for you. Listen wherever you get your favorite podcasts. It's available now. Woodhall's radical ideas about free love gained her national attention. Now, up until this point, leading suffragettes like Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton were wary of Woodhall, put off by her reputation, her messy personal life, 
and her ideas on free love. These are important contemporaries of her who sort of loved and hated her, I would say, or loved some of what she represented, but hated the way she delivered her message. The entire system of patriarchy is built and designed by men to maintain power, but women are often the foot soldiers of the patriarchy. Woodhull just wasn't respectable enough. She didn't act in the way many of her peers thought a woman should. She wasn't prim, nor was she proper. She completely defied all of these stereotypes. Crucially, Woodhull wasn't embarrassed by her past. She embraced it, all of it. But Woodhull was good at making friends in high places. In 1871, she scored an invitation to speak before that bastion of American masculinity, Congress, to address the House Judiciary Committee. This was a big deal for the suffragette movement. Around this time, Woodhull is asked to join the National Women's Suffragette Association by none other than Susan B. Anthony. It was a momentary and probably a bit of an insincere acceptance of Woodhull. It's not that all of a sudden the respectable women approved of her. It's just Woodhull was so effective, so persuasive. Traditionalists like Anthony and Stanton couldn't really ignore her. Before a packed committee, Woodhull made a powerful and at the time unique argument, saying the recently passed 14th and 15th Amendments already granted women, like African Americans, a right to vote. With the right to vote, sex has nothing to do. Race and color include all people of both sexes. All people of both sexes have the right to vote unless prohibited by special limiting terms less comprehensive than race or color. No such limiting terms exist in the Constitution. Women are the equals of men before the law and are equal in all their rights. There's something kind of amazing. She believed that men and women were equal, which if you think about it now, I still feel like many women struggle with. And there's an innate misogyny in the culture that a lot of women, including myself, don't even necessarily see. And so the idea of her being so ahead of things in a strange way is kind of amazing. Author Molly Jung-Fast adds, Woodhull wasn't done in a not-so-gently-poking and maybe even threatening tone. She said this to the all-male congressional committee. If Congress refused to listen and to grant what women ask, there is but one course left to pursue— What is there left for women to do but to become the mothers of the future government? Congress rejected Woodhull's argument. Women would have to wait another 50 years for the right to vote. But the speech only raised Woodhull's profile. She was now the face of the suffragette movement and rival to its leaders. The push for women's suffrage, that is, the right to vote, started sometime in the 1840s, well before the Civil War. In the quarter century after the effort started, suffragette leaders like Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton lobbied both Democrats and Republicans to recognize and even embrace the right of women to vote. They weren't having much success. And while the 14th Amendment granted citizenship to all persons born or naturalized in the U.S., Specifically, the newly freed slaves, it also in Section 2 of the amendment, exclusively granted the right to vote to men, making it the only section in the U.S. Constitution to discriminate on the basis of sex. 
This was a huge blow to suffragettes, who initially saw common cause with African Americans. By 1872, some women were ready to try a new strategy. The brash and energetic Victoria Woodhull was ready to make good on her threat to become the mother of government. On May 10th of 1872, the 668 delegates from the Equal Rights Party nominated Woodhull for President of the United States to run against Democrat Horace Greeley and incumbent President Republican Ulysses S. Grant. From this convention, we will go forth a tide of revolution that will sweep over the whole world. Shall we be slaves to escape revolution? I say never. I say away with such weak stupidity. I say let us have justice though the heavens fall. For women like Victoria Woodhull to step up and say, no, I deserve to be heard and my voice is just as powerful as yours, it's, it's, it's astonishing. It was a remarkable move. Woodhull was the first woman to run and to be nominated by a party for the presidency. Now, the legality of her candidacy is a bit dodgy. Not only did women not have the right to vote, but Woodhull was 34 years old, a year short of the legal requirement to be president. But hey, rebellions aren't led by rule followers. The Equal Rights Party went a step further and nominated civil rights activist and former slave Frederick Douglass as Woodhull's vice presidential running mate. The ticket was designed to court controversy. It was intended to shock Americans and to try to reestablish the historical link between women's rights and African-American rights. She used the language of civil rights for African-Americans a lot. So she would talk about ending the slavery of marriage, for example, in her speeches. Now, there's no evidence Douglas ever accepted or even acknowledged the nomination. It didn't matter to Woodhull. His acceptance wasn't the point. She was, had so much bravado, she just put him on her ticket and went forward and said he was going to be her vice president if she was ever elected. America did take notice of the energetic, charismatic, and controversial Woodhull, who traveled the country pushing her cause. She never stopped moving, never stopped doing public presentations and speeches. They were constantly being interviewed. There were newspapers, 10 times more newspapers available to the public at that time than there are today. So they had a massive amount of exposure. But exposure came with a price. It just intensified. The dial went up to 11 as soon as she said she was a presidential candidate because people thought, that's outrageous. The press covered her candidacy, and her radical ideas were debated around the country. However, her past comments were used against her. Woodhull's unconventional lifestyle was mocked, and her support for free love ridiculed. The criticism she dealt with is shockingly similar to the criticism many women candidates deal with even today. There's this implication that a woman candidate needs to be nice. She needs to uh, be dainty or pretty. She also needs to be married and to have children. Harper's Weekly printed a cartoon titled Mrs. Satan, which depicted a snarling Woodhull with bat wings and holding a sign that read, Be Saved by Free Love. Another woman carrying a drunk husband and a load of children is seen running away from her. Anytime a woman candidate does anything that is perceived or is actually sexually transgressive in its era, she is immediately compared to Satan. Critics shamed her for her fondness of wearing unladylike skirts 
In fact, many of Woodhull's fiercest critics were women. The author, Harriet Beecher Stowe, who claimed the 19th century's best-selling novel, Uncle Tom's Cabin, lampooned Woodhull in the novel My Wife and I. Her rivals for leadership in the suffragette movement, Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, both turned their backs on her and instead stumped for President Grant. Just that simple fact that there was a woman running for president in 1872 and one of the most prominent American feminists, not only of her time, but of all time, did not vote for her, I think is very emblematic of what happens in the feminist movement. Women fight against each other. But it would be a little-known anti-vice crusader named Anthony Comstock who would pose the greatest threat to Woodhull and her family as the campaign moved towards Election Day. They were constantly being followed, being harassed, being accused of all sorts of sexual behavior and being arrested because people wanted to shut women up and keep them at home. The struggle to make a family can be so painful, sometimes you just have to laugh about it. That's why I created IVFU, a podcast about the pain, joy, angst, and love of trying to make a family the new-fashioned way. Join me for uninhibited, honest conversations with patients, doctors, egg donors, adoptive parents, and more. I'm your host, Sam Shaber, singer-songwriter, storyteller, and infertile mama. Find us at IVFUpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you stream your pods, because it's all about being a family. The political climate in 1872 was not unlike today. America was divided. Economic inequality was rampant. And most thought the upcoming election represented a pivotal moment for the United States. Reconstruction, that is the effort to provide newly freed slaves with legal rights and rebuild the South, was under attack and losing public support. Meanwhile, Republicans were not content just codifying the outcome of the Civil War by giving former slaves political rights. Some believe the North's victory was God's providence and that they were obligated to rid America of its moral depravity. Historian Amy Warbell. It gave them inspiration and hope that they could achieve other aims of making America a more moral and virtuous and, in fact, Christian nation. The zeal with which they come out of ending slavery starts to branch out into new objectives. They are going to clean up American vice. Anthony Comstock, a devout Christian, Civil War veteran, and U.S. Postal Inspector, was America's self-appointed minister of vice and took it upon himself to root out the nation's immorality. Following the Civil War, the crusading Comstock moved to New York City, where he regularly supplied police with information about prostitution and other forms of vice. This being the Gilded Age and all, his tips were often ignored. So with a small band of fellow zealots, Comstock raided New York's abundant gambling halls and bustling brothels, dragging prostitutes headfirst into the street to be shamed and humiliated. But New York's women of the night were trivial and insignificant in comparison to the apostle of free love herself, Victoria Woodhall. In the eyes of Comstock and his followers, 
no woman represented America's immorality more than Woodhull. For most of 1872, Comstock made it his life's mission to jail Woodhull and her sister, Tenny. He's called himself a weeder in God's garden. He was a sort of moral crusader, reformer, preacher figure who ended up becoming a U.S. postal inspector deliberately to see if he could get people like her. As she campaigned around the country, Comstock looked for ways to take Woodhull down. Just days before the election, she provided him with an opportunity. And a special edition of Woodhull and Claflin's Weekly, the sisters published a pair of stories of scandalous behavior. Their expose described in graphic detail the affair of renowned Brooklyn minister Henry Ward Beecher, a vocal critic who railed against Woodhull's free love views from the pulpit. The minister also happened to be the brother of one of Woodhull's most vicious critics, Harriet Beecher Stowe. Both were pillars of high society. Woodhull defended the publication of Reverend Beecher's affair with socialite Elizabeth Tilton, saying, I am not charging him with immorality. I applaud his enlightened views. I am charging him with hypocrisy. She was calling out the hypocrisy of so many institutionalized aspects of society. The sisters also published the story of Luther Chalice, a prominent Wall Street trader who enjoyed the company of young girls, like really young girls. The story left little to the imagination. With the ammunition he needed, Comstock pounced. He ordered the newspapers, delivered via the postal system, to an address out of state. The salacious content of the articles violated newly established morality laws. The transfer of the newspapers across state lines using the postal system made it a federal crime. She was bucking the system, and so they really did need to put her in her place. Victoria Woodhull and Tenny Claflin were arrested by U.S. Marshals on Saturday morning, November 2nd. They were immediately brought before a judge and charged with sending indecent and obscene material through the U.S. postal system. They faced a year in jail and a $500 fine. Woodhull would spend Election Day in prison, unable to even cast a ballot for herself. From jail, though, she made one final campaign statement, a vow that what she had started would continue even if she could not. To the public, I would say, in conclusion, they may succeed in crushing me out, even to the loss of my life. But let me warn them and you that from the ashes of my body, a thousand Victorias will spring to avenge my death by seizing the work laid down by me and carrying it forward to victory. To this day, it is unknown how many, if any, votes Woodhull received. But winning was never the point. At the same time, Susan B. Anthony muscled her way into a voting booth and became the first woman in American history to cast a ballot, voting for the eventual winner, Ulysses S. Grant, who was easily re-elected. Two weeks later, Anthony herself was arrested for illegally voting. Woodhull and Claflin would face trial, but escaped conviction on a technicality. Outraged at their acquittal, Comstock would go on to found the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice and would take his crusade to Washington, pushing for stricter obscenity laws. The controversial Comstock law would be used as the basis for outlawing female contraception, pornography, and brought about sweeping federal censorship regulations. Years later, a young legal student named J. Edgar Hoover, 
the future head of the FBI would read and be heavily influenced by Comstock. More than anyone, Comstock designed a legal system that relegated American women to second-class status long after they had the right to vote. The challenges and obstacles many female candidates face today are, in fact, pretty much the same as they were 100 years ago. It's laughable how common it is that women are, female candidates are scrutinized about the way that they look, the way they present themselves, their sexuality, their husband's sexuality. All these different things are very, very common today. There is still a much, much longer runway for men. Men can get away with things. I mean, what's so weird in some ways about Victoria Woodhull is how little things have changed. If nothing is more apparent in the, the way that female candidates run for office, it is an extreme double standard, an extreme double standard, where things that for men are considered to be positive or affirming or part of their journey or inspiring are seen for women to be the opposite. And while Victoria Woodhull failed in her long-shot campaign for the presidency, she nonetheless empowered American women. You can use the presidential platform, and Victoria Woodhull did use the presidential platform in order to get traction for a lot of her ideas that weren't seen as mainstream. What I think we're to take away is that sometimes you need to be the first in order to open, as she says in her wonderful speech, you know, the floodgates for the future versions of herself. In many ways, the ways that Victoria Woodhull was so radical probably scared both men and women of the time. For a woman back in the 1800s to be as open about love, as different in thought about marriage and roles women should have, it's refreshing to know that there were women out there really pushing the envelope like Victoria Woodhull. Even if you don't agree with everything she did, it's still this awe-inspiring chutzpah or courage that you don't find in her time or our time. I think about women like her, if they were thinking into the future and they're like, oh man, in the year 2020, how wonderful things are going to be for women. If only I could transport to the future and live in this, you know, patriarchy-free oasis. Uh, and we are not there. You've been listening to Long Shots. Thank you to our guests, Eileen Horn, Kate Kelly, Molly Jong-Fass, Adrian Lawrence, and Amy Warbell. Jennifer Prediger provided the voice of Victoria Woodhull. Check her out on IMDb for more good stuff. Long Shots was created by me, Connor Powell, and produced by Gary Scott of Inside Voices. Our sound editor was J.C. Swadek. Sound design was done by Logan Heftel. Thanks to Jake Bluenote for the Long Shots theme song aptly called Linger. And thank you to our social media strategist, Madeline Rosine. Thanks to Starburns Audio for the use of their studios. And a special thanks to the team at Karamis, who built our website at longshotspodcast.com. Karamis is a leader in creative, strategy, and software development. Whether you're a Fortune 500 company or a newly formed startup, the team at Karamis will get your concept to the market quickly. If you like today's episode, you're in luck. There's more stories just as bananas as this one. 
Please hit the subscribe button wherever you're listening. Leave us a review on either Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the Good Pods app. And recommend us to a friend. Until next time, I'm Connor Powell, and this is Long Shots. Long Shots.